You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. I have a film, so I get the Ellison Film Company, and we're going to roll out uh, a, 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 a horror footage, I'm sorry, found footage horror movie called Dwellers that we're going to premiere next week in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina nice. uh, at, a, at Mad Monster HorrorCon. And uh, so they've been kind enough to, to premiere it for us. And um, we've now been getting invited to a whole bunch of uh, film festivals this year. So in Chicago, New York, all kinds of stuff. Can you talk about how you got, how'd you get involved in that? Well, <laughs> you know, you know, all this stuff. He's happens. diversifying you, his portfolios, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Say yes. You yeah. just say yes. That really is. If, if there's one takeaway from this whole thing and you want to go have dinner and just get out of here uh, and cut it short, just say yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Hey, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name's Corey Peza. As always, I am here with Siobhan and Benny. Has What's gone. up? <laughs> Woo! Hey, guys. That was such a bro <laughs> response. <laughs> we have such an amazing Grammy award-winning guest who literally is a man of a gazillion, bajillion, like this actual number, uh, talents. Corey, yeah, would as, you like as, to tell us? As if, like, you know, being the bassist in uh, Megadeth wasn't enough. Megadeth. He's such a great storyteller. Like, again, somebody that could just have He's written his memoir. Yeah, verbally, like Composer, just through the storytelling of this episode. His business card's like six pages long. It's ridiculous. Just <laughs> listen to the episode. Check it out. David Ellison. Subscribe all your... Yeah. Subscribe. Subscribe if you haven't. Yes. So here it is. Smash David it. Ellison, part one. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman, and I'm here with my cohorts as we've trademarked pending. Um, <laughs> first and foremost, not to be confused with Sayovan, Siobhan Cronin. Hello. And then, of course, my compatriot, my friend, my fellow absorber of crazy neurosis, um, Corey Peza. Thank you. At least one of those was an accurate description. I don't know. <laughs> I like how many descriptors you got. I'm not going like, to say, which... <laughs> say which one, though. And I got then, a really short intro. And then our guest is going to walk on stage because this is like, you know, this is like the intro. Like, we're like fluffing the crowd before. Like, yeah, the, see if the, you guys real, can figure it out. The Grammy Award winning. <laughs> can you believe this? The Grammy Award winning bass player. Crazy philosopher. <laughs> unbelievable dude. Has a, has a coffee company is a writer like is, is fighting for music rights he has no idea what i'm talking about because he's literally he's off hiding behind over a chair. there yeah but david ellison from the band megadeth <laughs> literally one of my heroes as well as plays on lost symphony as in lost symphony.com and if we've not told you already 2020-d.com please subscribe. subscribe 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 to everything please buy our record our cd our vinyl any of the things stamps like you if you want to send Corey stuff that's fine yeah, send it along. Uh, free things are great. I'll take as much as I can get. <laughs> so, Siobhan, how's your week been? Oh, you know, just uh, recording Paganini, so a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we did. I know. We just there did that today. There should be a meme about this where, like, wh what you think you sound like and then what you actually sound like when you listen back. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. It's, it's so hard. I mean, it's just, yeah, there's a reason. It's really hard. So and then I, people I, study it for weeks. I'm going to throw it to David. David, we introduced you so that you could just come in like, you know, we got the whole crowd fluff, like the, my mom and like the three other yeah, people yeah. that subscribe. But yeah. um, you you obviously are in like one of the coolest metal bands in the history of freaking time. But on top of which, I'd say, are you tired? But you have a, com a coffee company. And then I have not one, but two books. One's nonfiction. Right. One's fiction. So you're not even writing in the same genre. Like, dude, are you tired yet? I'm not. I feel good. I've, it's been nice to have the time off. <laughs> to be honest with you, 2020, 
shut down. Um, in fact, you know, this year I realized because just on Monday I got an or Friday I got an email from my international agent. I had a European tour I was about ready to announce for Ellison solo dates. And uh, that was going. Oh, and a solo record! Jesus fucking Christ! You have so much stuff I can't even remember it all, dude. I can only remember seven (laughs) things at once. Good memory, Ben. So that's saying a lot. Yeah, yeah. And his solo record's amazing. It's a bunch of covers that like we have to get into because they're awesome bands, and he's playing with like some of the craziest players on the planet. But David, please continue. Yeah, no. Sorry for um, interjecting. The bursts of energy from any good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's. uh, Um, but I but I got an email and and. And we, we had a reschedule of Japan and Australia that we were going to do um, in November. So October, November, and, and, it's, and it's all gone away So um, because of COVID. So, you know, everything's pushed into 2022. And obviously, Megadeth calendar's pretty full. Um, and, it, you know, literally, it's week by week, you know, whatever Live Nation says or whoever the, you know, the uh, promoters are on it. So, you know, my view is this year <clears throat> I'm focusing on uh, that book that you had this the rock the rock star hitman book and then I'm, I'm taking i have a film so i get the ellison film company and we're going to roll out uh, a, 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 a horror footage i'm sorry found footage horror movie called dwellers that we're going to premiere next week in uh charlotte north carolina nice. uh, at, a, at mad monster horror con and uh so they've been kind enough to to premiere it for us next saturday night february 20th and um, we've now been getting invited to a whole bunch of uh, film festivals this year. So in Chicago, New York, all kinds of stuff. Can you Ellison talk about how you got? Film how, company? Yeah. Can you, how'd you get involved in that? Well, <laughs> you know, you know, all this stuff. He's happens diversifying you, his portfolios, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. You just say yes. You just yeah. say yes. That really is. If if there's one takeaway from this whole thing, and you want to go have dinner and just get out of here uh, and cut it short, just say yes, <laughs> and that's what happens. <laughs> That's really is. We've it. heard that before, Valid, yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's a pattern yeah. for sure. It, it is, it is, and because you know, and I and I say that because um, you know, from '83 when we started Megadeth until 2002 when the group had disbanded for a period, um, and it was a sudden disbanding. It was you know kind of foreseen, but it was unexpected, and um, suddenly like your whole world just crashes. You know, you hit a wall and it's like, whoa, you know, what am I going to do? How do I make a living? This has been my identity. It's it's just, it's kind of the music I play. <clears throat> um, and I, I had started to kind of look around. We had a record deal at that time, Megadeth, with Sanctuary, which was put together by Rod Smallwood and the uh, people from the Iron Maiden camp. Um, and we had been offered a little imprint opportunity. So I was actively looking for um, bands and artists to sign during, that was the World Needs a Hero Tour for Megadeth. So I was looking for people you know, to sign as I traveled around the world. Um, and it was interesting because our manager- So the, the world time, really did need a hero. It did. It did. It did. It wasn't just um, a clever Dave Mustaine idea. I couldn't, I couldn't idea. find one. I couldn't find one, sadly enough. But, uh, <laughs> but the truth of it is, is- um, you know, our manager, Larry Mazur, he, he would always say to me, he'd, he'd go, David, be honest with me, is the singer a star? Like, that was just it. You know, he's like, forget uh-huh. the riffs, forget how great mm-hmm. they look, you know, all these. I mean, look, great songs, of course, but he would always just say, he goes, if the singer's not a star, just pass. Like, just walk away from it because it, it just isn't going to We sell. don't have a singer. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's why we're not selling <laughs> oh holy shit i just hey, had an epiphany that's why this isn't working this, aren't you glad you did this podcast we're learning all the reasons we're not successful yeah, exactly um so anyway a lot of lessons with that and, and so so here you know the megadeth ends the, the train stops everybody's got to get off and and you're and you know you get off at that station and you're so going, it's almost like a train of consequences it is of, of sorts yes <laughs> Which led to my, in my darkest hour, for sure. Um, I like how he passed it along. <laughs> of course. And then the reckoning day came uh, and uh, so on and on we go. Um, but yeah, and, and so in that moment, I, uh, I was, you know, and I got a call from Alice Cooper's camp to tour with them. At the same time, I had been offered a job uh, at Fender, who are right up the street from me, um, 10 minutes up the road here from me in Scottsdale. And... Um, they were, uh, you know, both offering a job and, and obviously like to play with Alice. I've known Alice. I loved their camp and I thought I was flattered they would ask me. 
But my kids were real young. My family was young. I'd spent a lot of time on the road um, up to this point. Uh, I mean, a lot, you know, touring with Megadeth. We gave everything to Megadeth. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to be who I am now, 56 years old, and have been on the road and missed my kids growing up and just missed the whole thing, you know? So I, I, I kind of held tight on the Fender gig. So F Alice moved on, got Chuck Wright from Quiet Wright to play bass. And then Fender, uh, I called him. I said, so what's up? Like, I'm hanging here for this. He said, oh, yeah, we hired someone else. And I went, whoa. <laughs> and I mean, I literally sat there and went, holy shit, I got nothing. I mean, literally everything, two great opportunities, both gone. And our guitar player who was in Megadeth um, just previously to that, up to that point was Al Petrelli, who now is, is oh, yeah. uh, had been in uh, Siobhan, Siobhan played with Al Petrelli. I played with him in, in the Transitorian oh, sure. Orchestra. So you know, yeah. so you yeah. know Al. So, so you, are yeah. you TSO East? Uh, yeah, I did mostly the East States. I played a couple yep. West shows because they do Florida for some reason, but yeah. Yep. So, so you know Al. So he's like, so yeah. he's with his cigarette and his thick Brooklyn air. So, <laughs> yeah. so, like, ah. so uh, here's the deal. <laughs> From this point on, you just say yes to everything, you know, like like an old New York gangster, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, yeah, just he's say so yes to everything. Yeah. And, and, and I love Al. He's, he's really, he's, he's one of my dearest friends. Um, I go see TSO every, every year when they come through town to just sit down on the floor. <clears throat> they fortunately give me some nice tickets, which I'm thankful for. And, and I just sit there and I just watch Al because I'm, I'm a fan. I, I, not only is he my friend, we were bandmates for several years, but, I'm just such a fan of watching him, hearing him. He's so in the music. I mean, Al yeah, plays guitar sure. on all the records. So when we hear this stuff on these, you know, uh, Christmas commercials, you know, <laughs> Honda commercials or whatever they use TSO music, that's Al, you know? So, um, yeah. but Al was a great mentor to me. And because um, he had been a, a, obviously in bands, Alice Cooper and various things, and he'd been a, a side gun you know, side man, gun for hire kind of guy. So he knew, and he said, um, you know, uh, he said, he goes, look, this is what you got to do. You just got to start learning to say yes to things. He goes, sometimes you get overbooked and good problem to have, but it's better than being underbooked, you know? So um, that's that's what happened. So yeah, coffee, books, you know, play some bass once in a while, um, <laughs> do some podcasts. You, know, you, just, wow. you say yes, that's what you do, you know? That's amazing. Well, let me ask. So for some of the listeners that may not be familiar with you, and to be honest, I'm a classical music girl, so I'm this is kind of a new world to me. You cool. know, I've read books and read things about you, but um, I'm interested maybe for people that don't know much about you, if you could walk us through getting into Megadeth, the start of your career. You want to do from. walking bass? <laughs> walking bass. <laughs> yeah, just kind of how, how that all came to be, because I think okay. that's really interesting. It is. So I, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, a um, little town called Jackson, Minnesota. My mother had the musical interest. In fact, I just posted something on Instagram today. Um, Sweden Rock Magazine had done a really wonderful kind of Ellison family retrospective of my whole career, right? Like, Wow, that's amazing. It was very cool. And and they and I told them, and I said, you know, my mom went to go see Elvis when she was uh, she was in nurse's training. So this was back in the 50s, 1956, and Elvis had played the Vets Auditorium in uh, Des Moines, where you and I have both probably played, maybe with TSO or the Arts uh -huh, yeah, in yeah. Mexico, right? And um, so my mom was there, and so she went to the concert. Elvis was very young, and um, she actually got his scarf, like, you know, when he handed the scarf out. She was, she was, and she always told me, she goes, I wow. want you to make sure you give that to Marty Friedman, you know, after I pass. <laughs> And and really, I, Marty's a huge, a huge Elvis fan. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. like, wow. that's the yeah. thing you're giving to Marty. You're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, let's give him Elvis's scarf. I wasn't sure if it was the Elvis thing or the scarf thing. I'm yeah, like, he's is he a huge scarf Elvis person? fan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, he's not a scarf guy. Maybe <laughs> yeah. he is. Japan. It is. He lives in Japan. It's cold yeah. over there. So yeah. Um, but and and sadly enough, I you know before my mom died, I looked everywhere and I could not find that scarf. And who uh, knows? Maybe uh, it was, maybe Elvis used old lady scarves back then. Maybe they weren't cool Steven Tyler scarves. I don't know what he was using. <laughs> I think he uses old lady scars as well, David. <laughs> I think he did, right? <laughs> hey, he was growing with his fan base, you know? So and it's funny because she said, she said, you know, next time he, he said, he goes, next time when I come back here, this place will be full. And it was. And he came back and, and you know, played there over the years. But uh, so was, I just posted on Instagram and actually put the picture. And I'm, I'm seeing these throngs of young girls with their arms in the air, like screaming for Elvis and to go to think my mom is one of those you know, <laughs> girls. Yeah. And, sure. uh, but, but she was, you know, she had a, a great musical ear sang in the church choir. And so that introduced me to music. So she had the Motown records and Beatles records. So that was where it started, you know, just liking music. I took 
they bought a Wurlitzer organ when I was a kid, which was pretty cutting edge. It was like a step up from just a piano cutting, you know, Wurlitzer organ, um, had a cassette deck in it. I remember we had Jesus Christ Superstar was the, was the, uh, which, you know, as a, as a kid who grew up going to Lutheran church on Sunday, I was like, this Jesus Christ Superstar thing seems a little wrong, yeah. right? Like, it, <laughs> totally. Well, you got Deep Purple yeah. singing yeah, about got, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Except Ian Gillen did it way better than that. Yeah. He was awesome. So, but that's how I, so I learned to play. Um, I literally took organ lessons from the church or from a church organist uh, friend down the, down the, literally the dirt road, the gravel road from where I grew up. But that was where I learned, you know, to read music, bass clef, treble clef. So, you know, right hand, left hand bass, foot pedals, you know, so kind of like a. That, that's a lot to start with organ. I mean, that's pretty insane. At eight years old, I thought it was a For lot. For sure. I was like, yeah. this, this you could have been Ray Manzarek. Yeah, you're throwing a lot at me here. <laughs> so, um, and then I took up tenor sax in fifth grade, just because it, that's a kind of like you're going to be a, a a nerd, a jock, a musician. And I didn't really want to be a musician because I was like, eh, I don't really like orchestra music. And but I thought the sax was the coolest looking instrument, so I went for that B flat tenor sax. So I learned to play that. <clears throat> um, so I became a musician early on, meaning that I can play and understand the language of music. But when I got, it's funny, our, our pastor, he had a son named Dwight, and he was a long hair guy, and he would drive the school bus every morning because my brother and I had like an hour uh, ride on the school bus growing up. Wow. Uh, every morning, yeah. And he started to listen to WLS AM out of Chicago. And that at the time would be almost like an active rock <laughs> station, right? Like, like the hard hitters were, you know, Kiss, BTO, um, Sticks. Sweet is just coming out with Ballroom Blitz, Fox and the Run, Kiss Shout It Out Loud. Um, you know, BTO had, of course, taken care of business and you ain't seen nothing yet and all this stuff. So that, when I heard that, I went, I want to do that. Like that, that sounds a lot cooler. So I got a bass. Um, and why a kid from the cornfield in Minnesota would choose a bass? I, I always say <laughs> our instruments choose us. We don't choose them, right? They choose us. Kind of like the wands in Harry Potter, right? Exactly. They, they've got your name on them. <laughs> bestowed from the heavens how, how right? did the bass choose you what, what was it about it you know what's funny because the bachman turner overdrive album not fragile which was the new record at that time uh it opens with a with a with a bass line and i didn't know what a bass even sounded like but it, it was long it had fat strings and it <laughs> just seemed cool right it seemed like the kind of the cooler guys played it gene simmons tom hamilton bachman you know turner, yeah. Fred turner from bto um i just it just looked cooler right did so, you forget and and whistle yeah but thunder, i wasn't a thunder fan fingers yet. i wasn't not, not yet okay no and in fact the first i remember my mom bought me a hit parader magazine and it had daltrey on the cover you know like swinging the mire doing some just kick-ass rock god pose you know and again <laughs> you know we're done with being a fireman and a policeman now we're gonna go be rock stars right so for me the bass wasn't it was about being a musician but it was like that, playing the bass is about being a rock star i mean that's that's not freaking kid ourselves right like jocko pistorius <laughs> <laughs> well he came along many years later okay but but um you know it's so it wasn't about just being a musician it was about being a freaking rock star you know uh -huh. like like we're gonna go light shit up and we're gonna blow things up and this is gonna you know and especially kiss i mean kiss were my beatles you know kiss had i hear people talk about the impact the beatles had on them from the ed sullivan show and um that impact that they seem to talk about is the same impact I had seen Kiss. You know, Kiss played on the Paul Lynn Halloween special when I was a kid and um, blew up an amp and looked cool. And, you know, I was just like, that's, come on, that's what we're doing, right? So that was, <laughs> that was the pursuit, you know? So, um, you know, I started, I got the, ba my, my, and the funny, then the back of the Kiss records, uh, in particular Alive, it said, Kiss used Gibson guitars and Pearl drums because they want the best. And of course, I wanted to be like Kiss, so I, I begged my mom to find a, to get a Gibson bass. And lo and behold, like literally the next town over, in a uh, classified ad, some guy was selling a Gibson bass, a Gibson EBO. So we went over, we bought it. It was 150 bucks, and it, and the EBO looks kind of like a Gibson SG. Yeah, I wish they were that. still 100 bucks. I know, right? <laughs> and the one that I had, I think, was like a 67 yeah. <laughs> single pickup. It had the violin tuners, so they yep. they weren't. They didn't stick out this way. They actually went back this oh, way. Oh, look. Sort of throw uh -huh. through the headstock. Oh, here we go, Ben. That, yeah, that's it. You do. <laughs> of course he has one. He's probably got two. Now, that's a EBO or EB3? EBO, right? He can't oh, hear you. Ben, put your headphones on. <laughs> so that's it. 
dude, there, that's my base. I was wondering where it went. I had <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> If anyone wants to buy it on eBay, it's way more expensive. He just gave you the provenance. This is I'll give dangerous. you. I'll tell you what. I'll give you 175 bucks. <laughs> 25 more than I paid. If you for. make it 200, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much that base, right? Um, and a little Fender amp, and I mean, I then I found a couple of buddies to play and put a band band together, and you know, on on we went. I mean, that was it. So, um, you know, I've been. You know, and then you know, at age twelve, I'm in bands. Age twelve, I got called up into jazz band. The guy, the guy who was playing, quit. So I got called up into, I think, senior jazz band. Um, I started getting called up to play. I was twelve, and sixteen year olds were going, "Hey, that Olson kid can play. Let's have him." You know, and I remember the first time I played with this one band, and these guys. Are you playing oh, double bass? These two get no. I never played double bass. No, nope, never played any uprights. Uh, always been an electric. Never had any interest in uprights. Still don't hate the sound of it. Don't like the look of it. It doesn't rock. You can't. Do you like jazz fire. at all? Are you? I mean, do like- I I do, and and again, I played it, so <laughs> I I had to learn it. I did. I have studied it over the years. And you know, the, the the truth is, you study jazz, you you know all of music, right? You learn how to read. We've said that so many changes. times yeah. on the show. So it's many different musicians that are insane yeah. levels are like, if you want to really torture yourself, jazz. It's like surprise yeah. torture yeah. music. Well, and look, the disciplines, obviously, Siobhan, that you've had with classical music mm-hmm. i mean that's of another level i mean those that the just the discipline of of it has to be done a certain way it has to be played with you know proper etiquettes and like it's basically like watching bridgerton on uh on netflix right? yeah sure yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it's it's all of that right yeah but, it's, uh, it's very controlled yeah yeah and it's funny though because as i you know, I mean, I got into showbiz literally by age 13. You know, as soon as you walk on a stage and someone's paying you, even if it's 20 bucks, you're in showbiz, right? Oh, absolutely. You are now, you're being paid for One day. A, yeah, just <laughs> you're, you're, you're paid. Yeah, one day, Benny, this too. It'll, it'll, it'll happen for me. I'll still get $20. Hope, still hope. <laughs> to leave. Put a flyer up. Someone will hire you. Trust me, it'll happen. Yeah. So, no, I remember know. when I was growing up where the first time I was able to play a complete piece with a karaoke machine, my mom was like, all right, I'm going to put you at one of my events. And that was it. <laughs> 13 it. years old. Not yeah. Su- not it's surprising. And, 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 and I remember 13 getting hired. And, and, and I remember going to this one in town. We had an armory, right? It was kind of the event center. And I remember going there with uh, some my parents and some friends. And there was like a, you know, a country and Western band playing, right? Both country and western, and they were playing. And uh, only and I two remember, types I remember of music, man. Both types, yeah. The only two types that mattered in the cornfields. Right. And I remember this neighbor saying he was getting kind of drunk, and he leans over and goes, "Hey, you know, just think you could be down there right now for fifty bucks playing country, you know, playing on that stage." And I said, "You know what? I'll play rock and roll for free." I, I, I hated country, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh-huh. And um, <clears throat> so. Because that really was where my heart was at. I, I mean, my heart was into rock and roll, still is. And so you followed um, Kiss up until the free part. <laughs> Gene well, Simmons is like, I would never play rock and roll for free. Why do I you mean, for free what you can get paid for? I get he, paid a lot. Well, there is that. If you if you can get paid for it, you should get paid for it. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it it you know on and on it goes. And and so I was usually the guy in the band that uh, I always started bands. I only I only joined one band. There was a band out of Iowa in my senior year. My other bands had broken up, so I joined uh, this band out of Iowa. And they were they'd converted a school bus into like a tour bus and they mm-hmm. they they played a lot. They 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 uh uh, the dad was like the manager and he was cracking the whip and, you know, out making them work. But yeah, remember we opened for Johnny Van Zant. We did, you know, some of the bigger bands that were playing the ballrooms and stuff in the area, you know, and ballrooms would hold one to 2000 people. So they were pretty yeah. big, you know, so I, I definitely got my chops up um, before I moved to L.A. Uh, I moved to L.A. right after I graduated high school in 1983. Was and- it just because you wanted to pursue music or was yep. there something that? OK, I was it. I, it's funny. So I took remember- the leap. I did. I, wa- I was rehearsing in my shed on the farm, like one of the grain buildings that my dad would let us move in and play in. Yeah. And, um, and, and I was probably 1981, because I think it was like two years before I moved to L.A. And I remember it j- the thought just hit me out of, out of nowhere. I was like, I got to get to L.A. And I, I remember I went up into the house. I told my parents, I'm changing my name. I'm dyeing my hair blonde. I'm getting an earring and I'm moving to L.A. tomorrow. You know, one of those, you know, and they're like, that's amazing ah. to have such a vision. Like, yeah. you're so sure of that. That's incredible. And I just followed it for the next two years, you know, and my parents, you know, look, I was obviously serious about playing, you know, I was, I, and they, they helped me, they gave me the family van. They, they dedicated a building for my band could rehearse. <laughs> we, um, you know, my dad helped me buy a PA head of lights. You know, when I got to LA and I was like, 
Yeah, it's fucking girl into the whiskey to get sound and lights and everything here. You're like, you guys yeah. are spoiled, man. I mean, back where I, in the Midwest, even, even the big bands. In fact, there was a band that Yanni played in called Chameleon before he became Yanni. Um, and he was the keyboard player. And he they was were, always they were, Yanni. They were always Yanni. He was always <laughs> They just Yanni. didn't know it yet, man. Yep. And he was, but it was, it was like a kind of a Bon Jovi sounding band. I mean, literally Bon Jovi kind of sounding band, kind of teeny bopper, but a rock band. They're very popular all through the kind of four or five states in the Midwest. They put records out. They toured, you know, they did the whole thing. Um, and, uh, and I, I remember opening for them you know, a, a lot. And, and, um, you know, they, they had the whole thing. I mean, a big sound system lighting. In fact, you know, it's funny, his drummer, Charlie Adams, who then went on to, uh, play with Yanni when Yanni went solo, he had the spinning drum kit that Tommy Lee had. Really? And <laughs> a lot, yeah, like five years before, yeah. three, four years before wow. Tommy did it. Yeah. And I heard that Tommy's tech knew that tech and that's where the whole idea oh. came in to get the spinning drum kit. And, um, and so when I remember going down to see uh, Girls, 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 I think Whitesnake was supporting them. They played Long Beach Arena. So this is what, 86 or something like that, 86, 87. And seeing the spinning drum kit, I went, hey, <laughs> rip that off from Yanni's band, you know? So <laughs> that's kind of funny to think, though, that you actually, th that Motley Crue mm -hmm. ripped off Yanni. And yeah. then you find out like Michael Bolton was like also like ghostwriting kiss songs. You're like, <laughs> yeah. what? Come on, what is going metal. on weird with my parallels. life? You know, yeah. what? I'm I'm reading a great book right now called "They Just Seem a Little Weird." Um, I know Eddie Trunk had just had the author Doug Boyd, I think is his name, had just had the guy uh, Brode, maybe is his name, and and it's a great book. It's it's about how Kiss, Aerosmith, Stars, and Cheap Trick basically all were interconnected and mm -hmm. um this guy i mean he did a great job writing this book um just the history because it's that kind of stuff sean delaney um who was bill of coins you know right hand man and um i also love that you're a defender of the faith because it's so important for people to understand where you come from and one of the things that was so illuminating when you came and played with Lost Symphony was how learned, first off, how learned you are with music, but mm. also like you, you know stuff. Like you talk to a guy like Billy Gibbons, that right. guy will tell you everything about every blues record, every guitar player, every yeah. guitar he's ever played, every play. And you're one of those guys, you know, every bass you've played, you know, every place you've been, you you chronologically can cycle <laughs> through it. And, and you know, all yeah. the people that got you there. And it's amazing to think that like, yeah, dude. Motley Crue ripped off Yanni. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it. I was yeah. there. Hey, so to add to this story, so here's a funny thing. Uh, it wasn't actually funny when it went down, but so when I met Dave, right? So Megadeth is a band. So I, so I moved to LA literally five days after graduate school, me and three other buddies, right? So we moved to LA. We move into this apartment, 1736 North Sycamore. And that whole street <laughs> and that whole area were kids just like me, we're going to go to MI, right? The Musicians yeah. Institute. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of ads and guitar player. And so I'd always see that. And that's kind of, that's kind of see, uh, how I sold my parents on me moving to LA is, hey, there's a school out there and I'll go to school. And, yeah. and I, I was going to go. I mean, my hope was, <laughs> my hope was that would happen what is actually happened, which is I'll get there. But then you got high. <laughs> I wasn't even getting high. I mean, you know, that was there too, you know, but, um, but that's that why was, I didn't go. Yeah. That was just circulating in the background, you know, but cause I was, I was not a, like a stoner druggy kid, you know, I, 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 and I fell into it and then yeah. I had to get sober and get out of it, you know, which I did in 1990. But, but uh, that wasn't my, you know, I, I didn't play music so I could get laid. I didn't play so I could be popular. I, I didn't do it for any of those reasons. Well, I that's why well, you're a bass player. Obviously, you like had rationalized this at some yeah, point. The glue, the glue <laughs> guy, right? Yeah. So, um, so I move out there to this to this uh, apartment, and and um, I meet Dave, who <clears throat> Mustaine, who uh, lived up above me, and you know, I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of Metallica, and so we meet him over a case of beer. And he's telling, and he's a great storyteller, and he's telling these stories about Metallica. We're like, you know, whoever that is, um, you know, and <laughs> wow. they they had they had just gone to uh, they had just gone to the East Coast and signed their deal with with uh, Megaforce, and that was when he got let go right. from the band. So, a little hot, you know, a little spicy, a little hot over the whole deal. Um, but he then he picked up his guitar and he started playing, and was like, whoa. Like that was next level, 
stuff. Like I'd never heard anything like that. You know, I mean, it was beyond Iron Maiden. It was beyond anything. It was it was a vision. You know, and you meet you, and we've all worked with them, right? The people, Paul O'Neill, you've worked with him, of course. Yeah. You know, um, we've all worked with people who have a vision. They see something that we just don't even see, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and so we're lucky that we get to work with these people in our careers. And 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 Dave was is one of those guys. And um, you know, so he was playing, and I was just like, me and my friend Greg, you know, we go back downstairs to our apartment that night, and Greg's like, dude, we gotta play with that guy. I said, I know that guy. He's 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 awesome. He's scary, but he's awesome, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's the real deal, you know. And I you know, I realized pretty quickly, you know, just walking down Hollywood Boulevard, everybody either looked like Vince Neil or David Lee Roth. Um, because part of what what hit me two years prior to moving there was Van Halen was now very popular. Um, and this, you know, as, as the next year or so would go on, I mean, Ozzy was getting his musicians from there. And that's how we learned about quiet riot with Randy Rhodes and Rudy Sarzo. Um, then we started to learn, you know, once Jakey Lee got in Ozzy's band, now we heard about rat and Mickey rat. And, and so we started hearing about it. And then, you know, once Randy Pat, well, even before, you know, uh, Jake, Brad Gillis was in the band. So we heard about this band called night Ranger. So, you know, suddenly the West coast was the spot and it seemed like, Everybody was going there to get, you know, these bands were forming. This new scene was happening. And I remember Motley was in Hustler magazine. I remember my drummer, Brad, like a hustler, dude, check out this band, Motley Crew, you know, and, 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 and so very on brand. Yeah. yeah, And so it just seemed go West, you know, get out there. And um, so when I got there, obviously that was happening. I mean, Quiet Riot, you know, mental health is number one in MTV. The Us Festival had just happened. So Judas Priest, Ozzy, you know, Van Halen had headlined it. Um, and it was big stuff, you know. So I get there and then I meet Dave and he's he's already way past what's happening now, which, which again, you know, I, I've always admired that about him, that he is a guy who is not in the moment, not trying to write what's happening now. He's always several steps way out in front of, of, of everybody else. So um, my friend Greg, Dave was actually teaching this kid, Matt Kisselstein, how to play bass. This, he was a nice kid from Beverly Hills, but he's kind of teaching him how to play bass, teach him how to play these songs that Dave was writing <clears throat> at the time. <clears throat> and, and so Greg kind of wormed his way in first as the second guitar player, you know, and then once he got in, and he's like, he goes, listen, man, you got to ditch Matt, man. You got to get Ellison here. This guy knows how to play bass, you know? So Greg got me in and, and then we started rehearsing. We went to, we did a few rehearsals and then we came back to the apartment. Um, and, you know, we, the, the, the day came like, hey, we need a name. You know, and Dave was kind of kicking around this name, Fallen Angel, which, you know, didn't really stick with anybody. And I remember Greg goes, he goes, he goes, I think we should call the band Megadeth. Because Dave had a song that he'd written called Megadeth. It was the first song he wrote uh, when he was coming home uh, from Metallica. And they sent him home on a Greyhound bus to add insult to injury. So he's coming home and he finds this handbill from Senator Alan Cranston from California who was talking about the arsenals of Megadeth can't be rid, right? Meaning we've built up this nuclear armament now, disarmament here on the planet that we can't even get rid of it. Kind of like Tesla batteries, right? We can't get rid of the Tesla batteries. <laughs> what are we going to do with them, right? There's poison to the earth. So You're just that, a modern day yeah. cowboy. Dude. Exactly. So the Megadeth today is the Tesla battery, right? We just can't get rid of them. It's going to poison the earth forever. So no, that's um, CC DeVille, dude. CC DeVille. He said poison. No. Boing. I'm confused. <laughs> so, I'm so confused. We're all confused now. So we're talking about vision. That's how Benny's brain works. He's like yeah. four steps out here. He's just on a different universe. Yeah. He's not even with us. Yeah. Shannon Lorkin's on my I, on my wavelength. You're equally Reel on some other wavelength. Yeah. I don't Reel know. Reel him in. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, that's that's the story, you know. So we meet, um, we then we start playing, we call the band Megadeth, and here we are. I have a question, kind of the uh the ellipsis between how it happened and now here we are um right. and i'm always curious as far as bands uh, especially at, at your level what how long was it before your first show and when the traction started to be noticeable as far as you know gaining fans because yeah. i know my <laughs> experience in local music scenes and building bands uh it seems like just this mystical thing to actually have that traction go all the way to you know and rocket right. ship up. So, so what was that like at that period in Unless time? Unless you're star set, then you literally rocket ship up. 
Yes. Well, there, was, there was time in between that too. But anyway, go on. Sorry. <laughs> well, good question. And in my case, I had that experience in Minnesota, you know, trying to just, how do you kickstart this thing and just get some, some spark turned to a flame, mm-hmm. turn into an inferno. And it just never happened. And that's why I just knew, look, I got to get to LA, you know, I, that's where the action's at. So when I met Dave, look, Dave was, is, was a, a, definitely a rock star. I mean, he, he, he just had a, the poise and confidence of, of such he was definitely famous in metallica um the people on the scene like we'd go out to the troubadour we'd go out to see a show and people write oh my god dave Dibestein's here you know like like he he is an attractive character you know charismatic guy right and so right out of the gate this thing didn't start here it started here Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and then went up from there so the beauty of that is it's not like i lived to la and then had to start you know, hanging flyers on the telephone pole in Laurel Canyon and try to get people to, you know, pay to play to come and see us at the whiskey. In fact, that's one of the first things Dave said. He goes, we're not playing any clubs in L.A. We're going to debut the band up in San Francisco because he had that's where he had relocated with Metallica up to San Francisco. And the scene up there was while in L.A. it was Quiet Riot and Rat and Motley Crue and, you know, the kind of the Sunset Strip thing. And of course, these bands had all now, you know, they were on MTV. They were signed. They, they were taking off. Well on their way, by you know, by 83. <laughs> but San Francisco had a whole other scene going on, uh, which was very much the thrash, what we now think mm-hmm. of as thrash. You know, so Metallica was a huge component of that, big time. And Dave was a star. I mean, he was essentially the front man of Metallica. James would sing, but Dave did all the talking in between the songs. Mm-hmm. Like, he was a well loved part of Metallica. And um so he he knew where the where the well was, you know. So yeah. when when we launched the band in um so again we formed in June of 83. We played our first show in February of uh, 84, right? So six, seven months seven months later. Um Kerry King from Slayer uh joined us on guitar um because he was he was kind of he didn't know if he was going to continue with Slayer. I could tell he was kind of on the fence about it because Slayer kind of had some interest but it hadn't again it was kind of the same thing they were wearing makeup they were kind of half motley crew and wasp <laughs> not scorpions anymore but kind yeah. of trying to figure it out Straddling and, and, the Car- fence. <laughs> and carrie had seen dave play with metallica at the whiskey opening for saxon uh, a few months earlier and carrie told me he goes he goes dude that dave changed my life man that seeing him play that that changed everything about how i play guitar how i think about music so he was a good fit i mean he was a great rhythm guitar player um played some solos dave did most of the soloing but so carrie was is really you know astute with it we go to the bay area he sees what's going on up there and goes holy shit like this is the deal you know and i remember we did an in-store we went to the record vault right there in, in san francisco to do an in-store and then kids came up and go dude slayer what's what's when slayer do inside so you could see the the eyeballs popped open like <laughs> yeah don't quit your day job quite yet you know what i mean like <laughs> so he went back down to when we we played the shows off the hook i mean and and again like you say i mean packed 500 800 seat you know venues packed i mean so it's it bang it started mm-hmm. you know what would take bands three four years to pack these places we packed day one you know so I'm very blessed. You know, I kind of look at all that work I did in Minnesota um, as just the kind of the, you know, the growing up grounds, get your, get your chops together. Cause when you hit LA, it's, it's yeah. Welcome to the big time kid. Do you think if you did, if you didn't have that foundation and, and kind of the, the struggle of having to figure everything out, you would be able to appreciate and manage what you had once you were at that level. Yeah. I mean, you know, fortunately I had a, my dad had, what they would call a tin ear, meaning no ear for music at all, right? Mm-hmm. And and as as my dad, of course, he understood business. The Ellisons, the Ellison men were educated businessmen, you know. So he tried to understand sort of the business of it. And you know, he'd say things like, "You know, don't ever sign a contract without having a lawyer look at it." <laughs> What's the first thing you do? Go sign a contract without having a lawyer. Look at it. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? sure. You know? What does my dad know? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. Um, you know, so he he was, you know, he he that was his sort of way to try to understand what I was doing, you know, because he knew I took it seriously. He saw me. I mean, he's growing up. He saw I was I was serious. This wasn't just, hey, I'm going off to L.A. to smoke dope and find chicks and dude playing a band, bro. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. not that guy at all and still never have been, you know. So, um, you know, so I think 
you know, it's it's you know, I think a lot of it was was growing up in the clubs and and you know, again, I remember going up to you know, I was the guy who always talked to the booking agents, you know, to handle the contracts. I'd hmm. put the promo kits together, like you know, I'd I'd go out to the band guys. Hey, I just got on the phone with you know GMA up in Minneapolis, and we're gonna go out audition for them so we can get more gigs. But we need a promo kit, like. We got to get someone to take the photo. You know what I mean? So I was yeah. kind of the organizational guy. You know, with you guys didn't have iPhones before iPhones. Believe it or not, there was a time before iPhones. I'm trying to picture it's amazing. this. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, got, like, I, I, as a bass player who actually yeah. knows music and handles all the grunt work and like the the, the busy work. You must have been the most in demand band member. <laughs> In and, the country. And, and I figured it out. And the other thing was 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 sing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I didn't put that together. Like I always say, I, I'm the. I, I would always shoot for the Michael Anthony harmony. You know, I love Michael Anthony, and I love yeah. that, that he it's was ambitious. Yeah, it's it's. In fact, when we wrote "Peace Cells," you know, at the very end of the song, it vamps out the chorus. "Peace Cells," but who's buying? I was like, okay, we've done it four times. Something's got to change because you know, in music, when you're composing after about four bars or four sections, something's got to change. Either add, take away something. So I just walked up to the mic and was like, he sells, he sells, but who's buying? You know, I just go yeah. for the third, you know, and and just just add that little extra, you know, thing in there. So, um, you know, that as much as I wasn't going to be the lead singer, what, which is kind of funny how that happened. You know, we, we were auditioning singers because originally Megadeth was going to be a five piece, right? We were thinking two guitars, bass, drums. <clears throat> Dave wasn't going to sing. And we had auditioned singers and singers and they'd flake out and it, it it was very poserish in LA. You know what I mean? Just again, people coming in, with their scarves, yeah. no disrespect to Elvis. I'm not sure much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> scarves. And, and I, I remember it was new year's Eve where, where we rehearsed kind of downtown LA. There was like a, a guy named Curly Joe. Um, and he had a, at a rehearsal place and he was a musician. So we're there freaking guy, the singer flakes out. So, Dave just takes the piece of paper of lyrics, pins it to the freaking wall or to the mic stand, and we take it from the top of the tune, and, and just out of frustration, he sings the song. I think it was like Chosen Ones or something, one of the earlier, you know, one of the early songs that we had, and he sings it and plays it and almost falls over, you know, because when you don't know how to sing and you're screaming and yelling yeah. and your face oh, turns yeah. red, you know, right? <laughs> and imagine. And, and, Kinda like and, nitrous. Uh, and, I, and it totally, totally. And I said, dude, that was freaking awesome. He goes, what? Really? And I said, yeah, man, it was freaking great. And I said, I said, look, you're writing the lyrics. Like, no one's going to be in the song and get these lyrics more than you. I mean, you may as well do it. And that night changed the course of everything. And then he started singing. You know, admittedly, he was like, look, you know, that's not my th singing isn't my thing, you know, but but he's what what I really learned. Killing from is his the, business. Killing is his business. But what <laughs> I learned from that good. night is that being a singer, you know, there's kind of two types. One, obviously, trained, you know, professional singers is... Like David Lee Roth. Some craft, yeah. Or Steven Tyler. But Vince these Neal. guys, like Steven Tyler, like David Lee Roth, they bring a charisma that, you know, when you, as soon as you hear them, like, you know who it is, right? And they yeah. deliver their words like nobody else can. You know, um, and you know, the Van Halen story, um, you know, Eddie was the singer and it was Alex who convinced him to get David Lee Roth in the band, partly because they were renting the PA from Roth. And if they got him in the band, then they could cut the $50 rental. Well, didn't, didn't Ted Amazing. Templeman try to get <laughs> on, but didn't Ted Templeman try to get Sammy Hagar all the way back from then from Montrose, the Montrose years. But then they're like, the chemistry is too good. We can't, we can't get a real singer like Sammy. Well, you know, like it's David. funny. I'm reading the Ted Templeman book now, so I will cross check that fact. Uh, and you're probably right. It, it probably, it probably was, which that. is why but my, Michael McDonald remember, worked on 1984, right? What's that? Well, I said, that's why Michael McDonald worked on 1984, because he was doing the doobies. I did not know this story. Uh, uh, Ted Templeman. It's the Doobie Brothers at Van Halen. The, is it, spoiler alert in that book you're reading. Right? No, spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I've never read the book. I just know about Ted Templeman because I'm a loser. I think you're the, the king of buying books. He's just like making shit them. up. He's I'm making not, shit up. I swear I'm to God. He's like, oh, let me give gonna... you a book tour on my Instagram. I know. It's like, okay, Ben, I'm, how I'm, many I'm, have you read? <laughs> I know. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go. Yeah, exactly. This guy's a poser. He doesn't even have books. Doesn't even own books. In fact, that one book I sent him. No, that's true. He did buy it though. I will. I did. No, I support. No, and actually, I encourage everybody. Like, because this is a really hard time for everybody in the entertainment industry. 
a lot of people have had to pivot as if David hasn't pivoted in a thousand ways anyway. Stop sounding so corporate. But, no, but I've I'm done a 360. Say, but I, I'm telling you, it's a 180 because otherwise we'd be talking about the same thing. But the fact that, you know, I, I want to support you and I think everyone should go support you and, and you everybody do. else that, that they believe in you this do. industry because it's really hard right now. It's also hard to write a book. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people <laughs> say they'll do it and then don't. So, yeah, that's amazing that you did that. Too. Yeah, thank you. I know I, I've written five of them. And it's oh funny gosh. that uh, that that one there that you hold the rock star hitman. I, I wrote it. I, I was in I was in um, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, back in 2019, December 2019. So just over a year ago. And a friend of mine called me and he said, uh, he goes, where are you? And I said, I'm down in Sao Paulo. I'm on a little solo tour. And he laughed. He goes, he goes, you know, we all think you're this rock star, but he goes, I'm tending to think you work for the CIA and you're like doing hit work on the side. And I go, dude, that's a freaking great idea to write a book about. So I, I, I said, can I, can I use that? He goes, no problem. That's why I had to thank him in the book. You know, um, I wanted to thank him because it was a great idea and he's a good friend of mine. And so I, I took that idea and I literally, I mean, the, that day I just opened the laptop and just started just vomiting ideas out into the baby, you know, into the, to the laptop. And, and I wrote and I, I hit my friend Drew uh, Fortier and I said, man, I got this idea for a book. I said, you've got a demented, sick, twisted mind. And um, <laughs> can you jump in for some killing sprees and help me kind of pepper the book out, you know? And because um, being the bass player, I'm good with, again, organizational. Yeah. Like I developed the characters. I, I developed sort of the storyline. And then, you know, I brought Drew in and he, and he would just do these random radical turns in the book. I go, man, this this is a freaking page turner, man. We got, we got something here. You know so. what I love about it? Well, is we started. You, well, I was going to say, because if you read the back of it, it says the Sledge Chronicles. Rockstar this is his first Hitman. time reading it, by the way. No, no, it's not. It's the first chapter in the action-packed saga of Sledge. Now, I love yeah. that because I appreciate the marketing technique because it implies that there are more chapters. We did the same yes. thing with Lost Symphony. And, and, and we started are, with chapter one. A, there's more well, of it's exactly It's exactly how we wrote it is that this is going to be a series of books, right? And since he's a musician, um, and I want, I want to give the story away, but obviously Rockstar Hitman, it kind of tells itself. But so in the story, he's going to be traveling around, right? So these these escapades can continue as his tour carries on, as his, as his career goes on. So book two is almost done, actually. Um, and we're going to probably timeline that for this year to put that out. And the other part, the other thing that was fun about it is, you know, it. I wrote it. I thought, okay, you know, do I write it? You know, like if you read a Grisham or a Jack Reacher book or you know Balducci, some of these guys, they usually write it as as sort of a third person telling the story, and then there's quotes of the characters. As I was writing this one, I thought, you know, it because he's a, you know kind of this this you know musician kid you know kid from the midwest goes to california so there's a little bit of some autobiographical storyline none of the characters or none of the activities but some of the <laughs> you know origins of it um and so I, I i liked writing it from his point of view from the character so it's basically i i, I realized it's a fictional autobiography because uh -huh. he's telling the story and and it, it's different to sort of develop the emotion um the and and sometimes the humor there was a way to kind of write some humor into it um that because it's him telling the story and 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 he can you know by, by being autobiographical in its in its narrative he can talk he can explain some of like oh shit i killed the wrong guy oh my god yeah. what am i gonna do you know it's like a historical can, fiction noir yeah it's, it's well it's like you benny we can hear you talk you can hear your thoughts outside your head <laughs> You know? That's because he says all of them yeah. without yeah. restraint. Yeah. yeah, that's what we go, Benny. Like that's it came out loud. Like you really yeah. didn't say. That. <laughs> um, as someone who has such a strong background in music and also in many other uh, areas, and especially writing, uh, are there any parallels in producing music versus authoring a book? Good question. They're very similar. I, at least I think so. Um, you know, when you <coughs> excuse me, you know. We all write different, but usually it's, you know, we sit down at a piano or we just pick up a guitar or, you know, but just the process starts kind of unassumingly. Um, even even when you're in these sort of writing sessions, which I don't like, I was like, well, you know, we're going to take this next month and write the next album. It's like, oh, it's just, you know, squeezing the, and sometimes, you know, I, I, 
Megadeth is a band that usually when there's a deadline, we work better. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like oh, this yeah. has to come out because we're going on tour. There's day, you know, we've got we've got stuff. I find sometimes that pressure cooker does work well um, in Megadeth. A lot of other situations, it it doesn't. Um, and and I, I've actually been in a in a writing season this last month. Actually, where again, piano, guitar. I'm riding my bike outside and suddenly I pick up my phone and go, Oh my God, I got to like voice memo this lyric. And, and I've literally written two songs, just riding my bike, you know, like around the block. Right. I come home, I I sit on my laptop and I type it out. I'm like, Oh my God, that's freaking just fell out of the sky, you know? Um, And I think that's the biggest thing with creation is, is just being able to capture it whenever it happens. Um, I'll sit here and just flip my iPhone around. I'll be playing something. Oh my God, where's my phone? And I'd grab the phone yeah. and just flip, you know, reverse the thing and just play the riff so I can remember the note and then just put it away, go have dinner, whatever, come back the day or two and just listen to it and go, yeah, I, I got, and then develop it from there. Um, and then I try not to get too married to the initial ideas. I kind of let that just sort of flow. And then, and then I get, you know, I'll either sit down here, I go into a studio here in town and I'll, 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 Hey, let's whip up a drum pattern and let me, rock this riff down you know and, and then sure you know yeah. d- develop it from there so um similar to authoring a book um just like again sao paulo oh my god freaking rock star he's freaking killing people uh awesome you know and, and just kind of start you know there i was in sao paulo you know whatever <laughs> i didn't use sao paulo in this case but you know kind of just i forgot even where the where it started I remember I kind of started a little ways into it, and then I went, okay, let me go back to this main character, uh, and, um, and then, you know, and just started, man, it just, when it comes to you, it comes to you, you yeah. know? I mean, we know we're a creative type, so um, to me, it's more about just when the floodgate opens, just freaking let it all out. And then as far as, so that's like kind of getting the ideas out, which does seem very similar, especially if you're a lyricist, you know, writing's writing uh, from that standpoint. Um, But as far as like, say, I guess, uh, production, like where you're producing an album, which which is, you know, maybe going back over the initial drafts, things like that, uh, is, do you find, are there similar like aspects that you enjoy about both, uh, you know, fine tuning things or, you know, letting, uh, you know, someone like an outsider, like a producer or editor in, in one, one case, like give you notes and then refining things like that. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's, um, to that question, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, when you write, are you thinking about the pentatonic scale or the Dorian mode or da, 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 <laughs> you know? And I say, listen, it's great to understand the language of music just because you can speak it. Like if you're going to live in Spain, it's good if you can speak Spanish, not Spanglish, yeah. you know, just because it's easier to communicate. Uh, and I remember the Beatles were talking about that when they were working with different orchestra musicians and in India and all these things. They realized if we, if we learn the language of music, it'll just make it easier. I'm a big proponent of that. So, but when I write, I just kind of throw all that out. Just forget any of this. This move fingers to where notes sound great and chords are kind of pleasing, and it's a, and just run with that. Then when yeah, sometimes you're sitting down and you're going, okay, now I got to expand this bridge, or I need to work this this piece here, or maybe you're putting a vocal over it and go, okay, what notes are legal here? And which ones aren't legal? Um, and that's it's jazz, baby. That whatever is, you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, well, what do they say? You know, wh- you know what? For one one mistake is a mistake. The second second time you make the mistake, it's jazz. You know. Yeah. Jazz, yeah. Right? Basically. <laughs> so, um, but so there's a time and a place for you know maybe theory, if you will, and and these kind of things like you know like you know or you know let's you know let's uh you know let me let me start the lick on sort of the second tone which would be the dorian you know and that kind of things to just maybe cut flavor the 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 riff or the lick yeah um and that's when it's nice to have that availability of the knowledge of to being able to kind of move around it's i find it's better in when you get more into the details of the production um i was called into playing a record some guys from at right in la <clears throat> with a bunch of pop people and 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 it was it was um and it was a it was a colombian uh female artist or actually they're launching it uh this weekend over halloween or halloween valentine's day rather. 
That or the other one. Interchangeable. The same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Synonymous. Yeah. Right. Christmas, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and because it's, it's very much, um, you know, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande. It's like that kind of music. So it's, it's, it's heavy, you know, bass chords, you know, mm-hmm. very repetitive. You're really getting everything out of the way for the female vocal to carve through. And so initially it was like, look, just kind of play, you know, um, G, F, D, you know, just kind of play that <laughs> um, and, and just sort of humanize the, the, the keyboard pad. Um, and then, then the, uh, the writer, he said to me, he said, um, and he's one of the producers as well. And he said, he goes, tell you what, now just go for it, man. Just play some stuff. And it was nice to, you know, to, to be able to work from that perspective, you know, and go, okay, what, what's my key AF major, you know, and what are the notes that are, you know, like, and be able to kind of understand to be able to move around because right there on the moment, it's like, okay, pull some licks out of the quiver and start firing some arrows, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it was yeah. nice to know what notes, what notes were legal, what really worked, um, you know, in that kind of a setting. So, um, you know, so that, those are, that's probably a more recent, you know, recent one. And, and producing, you know, producing is weird. You know, Dave and I used to always have a saying, I think someone told it to us back in the early eighties, you know, they said, nothing's final until it's vinyl. You know, meaning <laughs> until it, until it's getting, and until it's going to come out and, and you're ready to press it, you know, and make that master, you know, cause back in the day we used to go in when we were mastering and make the actual lacquer yeah. um, at the mastering yeah. plant that they would then take that lacquer. And that is the piece from which all the vinyl records were pressed from. Um, so, you know, it, until that thing was made and it was shipped off to the you know, to the pressing plan for the record company, like anything can change, <laughs> you know, every yeah. note, uh, the mix, you could always go, ah, let's tweak that mix one last time, you know? And, you know, of course now today we've got all this, this luxury of automation, which is beautiful. Um, because I remember doing mixes as we probably all have, you know, before we could afford computer stuff, all hands on deck, you know, you're like 14, you know, 24 channels, yeah. 36 <laughs> inputs, and you got people writing faders and, you know, doing all kinds <laughs> of stuff, you know, to try to, you know, there's nothing on this track until, you know, until after the second chorus. And then that's when the shaker comes in. So make sure you push it up, but don't push it up too soon because there's a shredding guitar solo up until that point, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, you know, you're just finding space and tracks back in, you know, when you're working on analog 24 track tape. So, um, which, you know, I think that's how Beatles records were made, right? They'd record four, they'd bounce them down, record yep. three more, bounce them down, record two more. Yeah. yeah, I think I think we definitely take for granted uh, the access we have to the technology. Ringo got the left sure. ear. <laughs> you know, there's what? a great video that I saw. I know, random these random things. No, no Siobhan doesn't know this. It's- Siobhan, if you listen to the Beatles, they only had four freaking tracks. So Sir George Martin decided, I'm going to put Ringo... Out the left ear, not Pete Best, not to be confused, okay? Ringo Starr came out the left ear. So if you listen to some of those old recordings, they're a little disconcerting for people that are used to like normal mixes, which is also why they re-released the Beatles in mono. Okay. Interesting. I'll have to listen for that now. I had like five well, questions that just escaped me because of that story. So I know. This, this random interjection of Ringo just oh. threw me way off my game here. No, but I did want to ask you before you move on. When it comes to writing, has has getting ideas been something that has always happened naturally to you? Like you've said that you have to just capture them. But, you know, as someone from classical music, I struggle with that a lot because I get yeah. so enmeshed in the rules, you know, where it's yes. like must play in this scale. Diatonically. Pattern, like. Yeah, and it's like I get so caught up in the rules when it comes to writing because my whole life has been just playing other people's music, right? Right. So it's it's interesting to me how people develop that creative voice and whether it comes naturally or if it's something that can get better over time. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> Excuse me. We had a drummer, Gar Samuelson, and I remember we were going over to his house one night uh, after rehearsal or something, and his brother Stuart was a, is a great guitar player, and and I asked him too, I said, how do you like, I was kind of trying to find my way with creating. And again, you know, the Megadeth stuff, Dave was essentially the architect of the sound and and what it was, you know, and it took me a couple records before I started, you know, collaborating and kind of finding my voice inside of that. 
Um, so I asked Stu, I said, so like, how, how do you, you know, how do you create, like, how does, how does this work? And, and again, as a kid, I'd written, I picked up a guitar. I used to write on guitar all the time. So I would just sit down, you know, and just compose and then I'd show them to the band guys and we'd go play them on stage. And, you know, so i already knew the process, but I was confused on how to do it, I guess, maybe in this new setting of this Megadeth setting. And I remember Stuart said to me, he goes, he goes, I think the idea is to just start the creative process and just always keep it going. Like just, again, keep the floodgate open, just always let it go. Sometimes you'll hit spots where it doesn't come and don't worry about it. But I think if we're always creating and we're always thinking about creating, it just sort of comes. And um, I've gone through the same thing. I'll go through seasons. I just went through a three-week period where I just wrote almost an album of material, you know, lyrics, um, you know, just stuff. And like today, I got asked to to work on some lyric stuff. And so it came to me very easy. I was very in the mode, tweaking words, you know, developing a melody, knowing, okay, these things, these words don't sing well. There's there's clutter in the in the too many syllables. And how do I streamline this thought with maybe fewer words to say the same thing? Um, you know, because that, that becomes a lot of it with with singing. You know, is is as, when you sing for a while, you know, yeah, these these words they look good on a page and it might work good in a book, but it's a nightmare to. to Can I tell you these. a secret? Yeah, doing it in practice do. for sure. Iamic pentameter. More useless information. Yeah, it makes it so much easier to sing. <laughs> okay, you must explain this. You don't know iamic pentameter? It's literally it's what it is. I, um, Siobhan, you probably could tell me the exact amount of syllables. It's a certain writing pattern so that you could basically so, follow, just like a haiku is five, seven, five. Is it Shakespeare? Uh, that- I, I feel like Shakespeare wasn't... I am oh, look, I, I, I don't know about that, but I know this. Let's use these guys. ACDC. You shook me all night long. Can you sing that or not? Yeah. <laughs> can, can a stadium of people sing that? How about shout at the devil? Okay, let's run with that. Let's yeah. see. Does that work? So, <laughs> is that iambic pentameter? Iambic pentameter is, is no, literally named. Metal, it's, David. it's literally named metal. after Shakespeare's writing style. It's, that's so basically yeah. not yeah. singable. So that yeah, exactly. Not yeah, yeah. Well, in other words, what would Bon Scott do? What would what <laughs> would Nikki Six write? He would drink. That's I what mean, Bon Scott on, would do about we're it. We're talking rock and roll. Let's dumb this down yeah. to the lowest common denominator. <laughs> ben just really wanted to use a multi yeah. multi syllable word. Because that's really where the yep. most fun is. It's like you know, being you <laughs> know, again, we, we've all done it. We're all musicians and fairly accomplished on this little chat here. So, you know, we know we like being the snob in the room and, you know, knowing slightly more, singing more, playing a little more. And and that's fun until all, none of your friends want to play with you anymore. You know oh, I mean, well, so I mean welcome is... to classical music. It's like nobody exactly. even wants to come to concerts. It's yeah. What's well, yeah. you know, it's funny. I think it was on the cover. Ron Carter has that quote on the cover of the current bass player magazine with Jason Momoa on the cover. He said that jazz is serious business, <laughs> and and he's right. It is. It yeah. is serious business, which is and business which is, is good. Why it, 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 yeah. Well, maybe not though. You know, because I always say, I mean, look at ACDC. F- play fewer notes, make more money, play to more people. You know, and do the same record six times. Hundred percent. I'm friends with a lot of jazz musicians, and it's amazing the amount that the the set times they have to play, how much they have to uh, learn, what they have to write, and it's for yeah. like. Way less money than anything yeah. else. It's for 150 it's wild. bucks a night, you know. Yeah, I mean? for yeah, four right. hour set at a club with five yeah. people listening. Or write yeah. three right. chords and make 150 grand. Right. So that's okay. where, you know, <laughs> scale of economy. Yeah. Less right. notes, more money. And again, it's not about the money, but it, but it, it is about the fun factor. You know what I mean? When you go to the keg party, well, quality um, of life too. I mean, it's like if you're going to yeah. slave over stuff so hard, and it's like you can't even sustain it, and you start to resent it. Yeah, I mean, there is a balance. It's worth talking about. Yeah, and we have a, we have a lot to talk about. Wasn't it actually right, about the money? I, I, so, I prolonged this episode. No, that was no, absolutely. My fault. I think, uh, honey, it's about the money. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> this, uh, this money, honey, honey, isn't it? That's another ACDC lyric. See, there's that's why I was saying you're talking about ACDC from Shakespeare. Something that rhymed in iambic pentameter. We're uh, we're up at the end of the end end of this first uh, hour here. <laughs> so that's onomatopoeia, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think I'm going to change my shirt for the next one. <laughs> He's going to leave and never come back. <laughs> never time. come back, ladies and gentlemen. You've been 2020. Stick around yeah. later this week for David Ellison part two. He's got so much stuff we don't have time for it. Holy crap! And don't forget to subscribe. See you at part two. 
Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Check out the merch there and all the other fun stuff. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 16, featuring music industry legend Dan Beck. Check it out. It's uh, well, music fluid. You know, yeah, well, I, I ran Aerosmith's publishing at one point, and I gave Steven did. Tyler his first royalty check. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> so, no big uh, deal. No big deal. Yeah. I don't think he remembers it. I don't, you know, I used to introduce I don't think myself. he remembers 1982 to 1989. <laughs> 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 it's, uh, I, every time I would, would, would see him, he'd come into the office. I, I was working at his management company at the time, and he would come into the office and I would introduce myself to him every time. Oh and, my gosh, wow. And, and sometimes- <laughs> one of those guys. And sometimes he would say, Dan, why are you re- reintroducing yourself? Uh. And it's like, <laughs> but sometimes he didn't. You yeah. know? So. <laughs> This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.